to you by Chemistry. Uh, hello everyone, I'm Dr Hannah MacDonald and I'm a policy advisor at the Royal Society of Chemistry and I'm sitting here today with my colleague Dan. Yeah, hi, I'm Dr Dan Corbell and I lead the science policy unit here at the RSC. So we've sat down today for this one-off episode of Brought to You by Chemistry to talk a bit about plastics and more specifically because Dan was out of the office last week in Paris at the negotiations towards a UN treaty to address plastic pollution. Dan, I know I've definitely oversimplified that title, so could you please give us the meeting's proper name and also give a bit of background to the Plastics Treaty and the meeting you were at last week in Paris? So the actual beast is called the International Legally Binding Instrument on Plastic Pollution, including in the marine environment. And I went to the second session of the Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee. But maybe just to kind of wind back a little bit, I wanted to say that Pollution affects all of us, wherever we are, whoever we are, as individuals, as societies. And the UN Environment Programme, or UNEP, actually speaks of a triple planetary crisis. The climate crisis, the crisis of biodiversity loss, and the pollution crisis. And when I say pollution, this very much includes plastics, uh, the impacts of unmanaged plastic waste, and the impacts of plastic-related emissions along the whole plastic life cycle and all around the world. So the Plastics Treaty negotiations are an effort to come to an international agreement about what um, countries can and ought to do about plastics pollution. And this is a multi-year process. And we're about a year into this process. And the meeting in Paris at the end of May, beginning of June, was the second time delegations from pretty much all UN member states came together in person to discuss the way forward with this, with this treaty. So why was the RSC at the Paris talks? Chemistry plays an important role in understanding the, the ins and outs of the plastics challenge in, in helping with the development of, of different solutions and in comparing different solutions and also in uh, measuring our progress um, in, in curbing plastic pollution. And that's why the Royal Society of Chemistry, we have, a, we have a very large membership of professionals who work in the chemical sciences all across the world. We felt that um, our community um, has quite a big stake in the debate about the plastics treaty. And many of our members work in, in relevant areas, be that polymer chemistry, recycling technologies, or marine pollution. So we've already been proactive in working with UNEP to um, develop the new science policy panel on chemicals, waste, and pollution prevention. And this will then operate alongside the, the climate change and the biodiversity panels. So when the negotiations about the plastics treaty were beginning, we felt that it would be um, important to make sure the voice of the chemistry community is heard during that process as well. So and it also nicely builds on, on all the pol policy work the RSC has done already in plastics over the past two, three years. We've had a lot of engagement with policymakers here in the UK, and we have a great set of uh, explainers that look at various aspects of plastics from different recycling approaches and compostability to microplastics and life cycle assessment. And of course, the, the first season of, of this podcast here back in 2021 was on plastics. So we, we saw going to Paris as a good way to engage with the different uh, stakeholders involved in the process and also to understand better where we might be able to add value as uh, the negotiations unfold. 
I mean, from a non-expert and someone who wasn't there, it sounds really positive that such a wide range of organisations were are coming together with this ambition to make the treaty meaningful and have a genuine contribution to addressing plastics pollution. Um, but presumably they all also had their own motivations for joining. Yeah, so in Paris, I spoke to quite a few of, of different different organizations, universities, environmental charities, campaign groups, waste management associations. So as you said, quite a big range of um, different types of stakeholders. And they all had their specific reasons, drivers for, for joining the negotiations. But um, they all came together with a common ambition to make the treaty meaningful and to make it a, make a genuine contribution. We've picked four conversations I had in Paris to share with you in this episode. I spoke to Komal Sinha, who is a sustainability professional and who has uh, an interesting perspective to share about how we may be able to address inequality issues across the plastics value chain. I also caught up with uh, Professor Steve Fletcher from Portsmouth University. He is the director of the Global Plastics Policy Center. I also spoke to Dr. Xu Jing Chen, who works as a technical expert for the not-for-profit organization Pacific Environment, and to Shannon Mead, who is the founder and CEO of No More Butts, a charity that raises um, awareness about the scale and the environmental impacts of tobacco filter littering. They sound like four really interesting perspectives, and it's great to hear more about their backgrounds and different organizations. So let's listen to them. But I think before we go to your interviews, we're going to hear from you and your first impressions when you arrived at the negotiations last week. Okay, I've had my morning croissant and a pretty strong coffee. And I just got my official Observer badges. And I'm now sitting in a lovely Japanese garden in the center of the UNESCO building in Paris. I'm pretty excited to be here at INC2, which is the second time representatives from pretty much all United Nations member states are coming together to talk about how to manage the global plastics crisis. It's going to be pretty busy. Uh, there are some 1,700 people here from UN member states, non-governmental organizations, businesses, and science and technology organizations such as ourselves. The aim of the treaty is to deal with plastics pollution across the entire life cycle, from production and use of plastics to when plastics become waste, and also to cover all types of plastics and wherever they're found. So there you go. That's the plastics treaty in a nutshell. Very urgent and very ambitious. Uh, I'm Komal. I am the director of Plastics Policy and Markets at Vera. Um, and my role really is to support, lead the market development and engagement of the policy side of the plastic program and connecting it to, you know, the regulatory mechanisms and uh, the policy level opportunities that emerge that already are existing. So that sort of is my role at Vera. The reason why we are here at INC2 is essentially because we believe that Vera's plastic program, which includes the plastic standard and the plastic crediting mechanism, can support in meeting several of the objectives of the Global Treaty, 
So that's what we want to um, sort of uh, talk about and to bring more awareness about the program in general while we are here over this week. So what what impact could the, the treaty have on the environment, do you think, on at a global level? And I think we all agree that uh, member states need to commit to this as soon as possible. Why is that? Could you talk about that from your perspective? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I think um, while everybody's entrenched in the negotiations, everybody knows about the magnitude of the problem. But I think there are, in my head, there are four really specific issues related to why we have all gathered here. The first is the environmental issue that we all know. Plastic is an environmental problem. You know, the global circularity we just read has shrunk from 97%, which essentially means that less plastic is being recycled overall. But I think there are certain other, I think, interlinkages between environmental and other issues, which is the human issue. So we know that there are about 15 million informal workers across the world. The number may even be easily be much more because many of them are not recorded accounted for. Um, they form the backbone of the collection and recycling economy, particularly in the global south, but they work under extremely unsafe conditions. And so far, we have seen that they have been excluded from any of the dialogues that could potentially offer the opportunity to improve their status quo. The third is plastics is also an equity issue because it affects certain regions and communities disproportionately more than the others. So look at the vulnerable regions, the least developed countries, the island nations that have borne the brunt of plastic more than the others. So it's it's really important to also hone in on the equity side of the plastic problem as well. And the fourth really is the finance. So we know that under status quo, there will be a $40 billion funding gap uh, to finance plastic waste collection and recycling projects. Um, and we know corporates and businesses want to act, but there aren't enough tools to direct funding to these meaningful projects. So I think that's what the global treaty that's what makes it so urgent and so important to address not just the environmental but also the linkages that it forms with the human and the socioeconomic. You mentioned financing um, this transition. Could you maybe elaborate on that a little bit more in the context of the plastic credit and the standard? We just talked about all of these different you know, environmental and socioeconomic uh, issues and the linkages between them and how treaty could basically approach them. And I think in response to this plastic crisis, Vera developed the plastic uh, program in 2021. It's been a couple of years now since it was launched. Um, and I can try to explain the plastic program how it is structured. So it has uh, the plastic standard and supporting methodologies, um, which basically provides a framework for measuring the impact of plastic waste collection and recycling activities, so the downstream plastic waste management. Um, and the projects that are certified with the plastic standard will issue plastic credits. Um, the, 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 the whole concept of plastic credits, very simply put, is to act as a downstream investment mechanism um, in order to mobilize finance for plastic waste collection and recycling activities, as well as development of collection and recycling infrastructure. It can be done anywhere in the world. But I think the impact is really high when these systems can be created in regions where it does not exist um, or who do not have the resources to develop it themselves. In addition to that, the plastic standard also builds in mandatory social safeguards to protect the rights and interests of the uh, informal communities, the vulnerable communities. Um, and there is also um, a stakeholder engagement process, which is an integral part of uh, the entire the standard process 
which ensures that their concerns um, are heard and duly addressed during the um, during the entire project development process. I would say this, the, the program is developed in a manner that integrates both the environmental and the human components. That's so interesting. So has that been implemented yet or is that something that is still in development conceptually? No, it, it's been operational for more than two years now. Um, and we have several projects that have already been certified, have started generating plastic credits, started benefiting the communities. And I think it's we've 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 it, it's been very encouraging to see that the projects basically it's been region agnostic, it has come from all across the world. It has supported different kind of communities and former fishing communities, um, the waste workers. So I think it's been it's been a very healthy mix in terms of the topography, the regions, the communities and so on. So yeah, we, we do hope that it continues to scale up the way we've been seeing the trend that's been very encouraging. But yeah, I think that's where we are right now. So if you had to pick one challenge that we need to overcome to make the treaty overall a success, what would that be? Um, looking at where we are right now and what we need to achieve by 2024, I think it's great to have an ambitious target because we've seen how global negotiations have progressed in other sectors. So I think it's a very, uh, I would say it's a very bold and encouraging move to say we need to get this done by 2024. But I also think that's also a challenge because so many countries coming together with so many different perspectives. I would say, yeah, getting getting a treaty in place by 2024 is <laughs> currently, I would say, is the bigger challenge, the biggest challenge. Thank you so much, Koma, for your time. It's been really, really interesting talking to you. Thank you and, so much. Um, I hope that um, the next day and a half will deliver what we hope it will and uh, wish Just you all crossed. the best with your mission as well. Thank you. So I'm Steve Fletcher. I am the director of the Global Plastics Policy Centre at the University of Portsmouth in the United Kingdom. So you came here before the main part of the negotiations started. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? In the lead up to any international meetings like this, there are a series of events that tend to be uh, put together by the host country. And so uh, in the, on the weekend before this meeting started, there was uh, a meeting hosted by the city of Paris to look at the role of cities in tackling plastic pollution, uh, which is really interesting, uh, actually. Uh, city scale is often not really talked about in, in, in the UN system because it's all about countries. Uh, but this, this meeting was really showcasing how cities all around the world are working together to tackle plastic pollution within cities. And we should remember, of course, that so much plastic pollution originates in cities, that cities probably do really have a strong role to play here. Speaking about the treaty itself, what do you think could the impact be of this treaty on the environment across the world? In much of our research at Portsmouth, what we find is that policies that are put in place by individual countries to sometimes put a tax on a on, on plastic bags or to ban certain types of plastic they're good and they're very well meaning but they don't have the power and reach to really affect the global plastics pollution crisis and what 
we've got at the moment as a result of that is we've got a really diverse set of policies being applied across a range of countries in no coordinated or coherent way. And so the plastic problem is just getting worse and worse. And the policy response is fragmented and sometimes feels a bit random or, or driven by political forces in an individual country. And yet at the same time, plastic production is increasing rapidly and the quality of life of people, particularly in you know, large cities in the global south, is horrendous. It sounds like the, um, this is a really, really complex area, isn't it? And, and there are so many things you could focus on now to make this treaty happen. If you had to pick just one challenge that we need to overcome to make, make this whole thing a success, what would that be? It's really hard to see just one intervention or one change that the, the, the treaty could, could deliver. But what, what I would say, it's, it's almost a change of change of mindset, uh, if I could put it like that, or, 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 a, or a shift in the whole plastics economy. So at the moment, the mindset seems to be that it's okay to take some of the world's actually pretty precious resources, make it into a product or make it into packaging and use it once and then throw it away. And, and that can't be a sensible way to use any resource, let alone plastic, that then pollutes the environment, you know, harms people's health, and um, you know, creates a terrible pollution problem. So I think if the global treaty can can shift the the plastics economy from one that's very linear to one that is much more circular, resource efficient, low pollution, yeah. and within planetary boundaries, that that would be wonderful. But, but that's very much like the whole purpose of the treaty in, in a way uh, to to do that. I think. Just as a final question, maybe do you? have any sense of what kind of mechanism that could be then is is there something like a, a science or oh, not sorry let's not say science an evidence panel um is, is there a need for for that or um what, what what would be an efficient mechanism just learning also from from other international um conventions of that nature there are multiple pathways that scientists can provide evidence the challenge is, does the challenges do any of those pathways reach the negotiators and the national delegations? And so there are um, already groupings of scientists and evidence providers forming. So there is the Scientist Coalition for an Effective Plastics Treaty, and they have a help desk, and that help desk. Uh, matches evidence and science needs to countries and observers who need some form of evidence or scientific support. So that is one way of doing it. Another way of doing it is having open calls for evidence around certain key issues that are coming up in treaty negotiations. So, for example, I mentioned about the National Action Plans. There'll be other researchers around the world who have got immense experience of dealing with national action plans in other contexts, contexts, in other global agreements. 
who may be entirely unaware that their knowledge would be useful in discussing how to apply national action plans to the plastics problem. And so putting out open calls, widely promoting those calls in the scientific and evidence community to try and get at those people is really potentially important as an alternative pathway to get input. In, in most cases, uh, researchers' knowledge is, is narrow but deep. So they know a lot, but sometimes about a very narrow range of things. So individuals, evidence providers or scientists may not think to join the scientist coalition. They may not think to come along to the INC meetings, but they have really important knowledge that would be super useful. So providing almost an open-ended or, or open invitation for these evidence providers to, to either meet and in a facilitated discussion or to submit evidence around certain key questions, I think would be a way, another way of getting evidence into the negotiations a little bit more effectively. But I would also reiterate the point is that simply getting the evidence providers to provide the information isn't the end of the story. There then needs to be some way of connecting that evidence to the people who want it in a way that they want it and in a way that makes sense to them. There is a real challenge here of how the evidence is communicated in a way that enables it to be used. So usable or, or operational evidence versus evidence that's just interesting and, and somehow useful, but can't actually be operationalized in a negotiation process. Wonderful, Steve. Thank you so much. That was really, really insightful. That's all right. Um, I thank you so much for your time. So my name is Shannon Mead. Uh, I represent an environmental charity called No More Butts. Uh, we're an Australian-based uh, charity, but we uh, facilitate and, and work across several different groups uh, across the world. Um, and our advocacy is essentially to look at um, you know, designing out waste and therefore looking at removal of um, plastic tobacco filters. So what, what impact do you think could uh, the Plastics Treaty have on, on the env environment across the world? I think it's, it's one of the, the biggest steps that we've, you know, we've got you know, at our disposal. Um, to have true impact on the world as, as one of the you know, three of the, the triple planetary crises when it comes to you know, plastic pollution and how do we deal with that. Uh, so I think you know, this session and, and all of the INC sessions are critical um, that we arrive at that legally binding position um, so that the world will take action in a coordinated way uh, to you know, remove plastic uh, pollution. So the, the target at the moment is 2024 for the treaty. So why would you say must nation states commit to it this as soon as possible, really? 2024 is an ambitious um, timeline to sign up. I think it's necessary because then everyone is working towards the same objective and goal. But the implementations and the true impact of that really won't come for you know, another 5, 10, 15 years down the track. And there's varying degrees of you know, targets being thrown around 75%, 80%. Is it 2040? Is it 2050? So I think the detail of the implementation is going to be what is going to take a lot of time to um, you know, for, for countries to agree. But I think 
moving forward from um, a situation where a, a text can be called um, so that it can be reviewed for INC3 will be a critical outcome for INC2. So if you had to, to pick one challenge that we need to overcome to, to make the treaty a success, uh, what would that be? For us specifically, um, with our charity, that would actually be looking at um, defining tobacco filters underneath the, the definitions in a proposed annexure, um, so that it actually would be implemented, uh, implemented as a, a ban of tobacco filters. Um, but I think more broadly, um, definitions overall. So what does problematic mean? Uh, what does you know, toxic mean? What are you know, chemicals of concern? What are plastics of concern, polymers of concern? So I think a lot of work needs to be done on the definitions because that's then going to set the scene for what will be ultimately regulated as part of the execution. Just thinking of your the specific issue you're advocating for, um, is that something that's been around for a long time as something that's been seen as problematic? I mean, the tobacco debate uh, mm. has been going on for many, many decades now. Mm. Um, but uh, what about the buts? Yeah. So I think it's now from a science approach, it's more so about what does the research show? So, um, you know, tobacco filters themselves probably haven't been considered as an issue. It's the smoking, it's the behaviour of the smoking, the cancers that that cause. Um, and potentially the impact to the environment, but that's holistically. When we narrow down to what the impact is, it's the cellulose acetate, you know, the plastic tobacco filter. So cellulose as a plastic isn't a plastic of concern, but once it's used in the method that it's prescribed to be used, i.e. smoked, then all of a sudden you're capturing 7,000 chemicals into there, you've got heavy metals into there, arsenic and lead. So when that's littered into the environment, that creates a, a big issue. So I think there's more, more evidence and more science now about the environmental impacts as well as the human impacts um, of, uh, of smoking. But more recently, it's actually the science. Let's have a look at the human health impacts of the filtering itself and the fact that that in itself can actually cause human harm. So it's not just the process of smoking. Using a tobacco filter, a plastic tobacco filter to smoke can actually cause harm as well. So, I mean, you mentioned um, the science of this all. So, what, what, in terms of the negotiations, what role do you think scientists or scientific evidence should play in the nego negotiations and also in the implementation of the treaty? And I think it's an important thing. Anecdotally, I can talk about how many butts there are on the ground, or I can go and pick some up and make a sensational claim about you know how dirty the streets are and so on. But when you need an informed position to actually move forward with a recommendation, that's where science comes in. And I'm you know, quite confident that there is the science, there is the research to say it's not just an opinion that we should ban them, it's not just because they're unsightly. There is now scientific evidence that says it can cause additional lung cancers, it can cause human health implications through the ingestion of microfibers. Um, and I think that's a science discussion that can be taken in. So it's not a, a position A or B or do you agree, yes or no. This is now the fact and we can now debate what do we do with those scientific so maybe my final question would be on scale. Um, what, what do we know about the scale and distribution and legacy litter and, and, and waste, but waste? So we estimate that there's 4.5 trillion annually being littered. Now you look at the pieces, waste. that is. Individual pieces, individual cigarette butts being littered. Um, and that's the bulk of what is consumed. So obviously every time consumption rates change, littering behaviours may change. So 4.5 trillion is not a fully quantifiable amount. You can't go and say per square metre it equals this. 
um, but based off trends of you know 50 to 60 percent of people littering their cigarette butts, and based off um, estimated consumption based off smoking rates, um, that's how we've arrived at 4.5 trillion. Whether it's 3.5 trillion or 5, you know, 5 trillion, that doesn't matter. I think in this case it's a trend. It's not scientific data. It's 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 trend. Um, so that is alarming in itself, but more importantly, it actually can accumulate for up to 15 years in the environment. So you've got this 4.5 trillion litered each year, but you times that by 15, and all of a sudden the weight and the volume also becomes very important. And how much does that actually leach into our water systems and our water streams? So yes, this is plastic pollution, but it's also the impact on our oceans and waterways. So you've got a toxic plastic that's entering the waterways, polluting water, and accumulating a mass which over 15 years is actually quite large. So with the emergence of um, e-vaping, then um, how do you think that's going to affect um, what you're looking at, um, also from a campaigning point of view, perhaps? Yeah, so I think e-vaping is, is quite novel, and, and it is a, you know, a novel or a novel product when you look at um, the approach to tobacco. And some countries are taking the, this is the answer to people stopping smoking. Um, and they're rewarding and promoting vaping as an alternative source. Um, so countries like you know UK, where they've um, just recently announced they're going to give out a million vapes to smokers to try and get them off cigarettes. That's in stark contrast in Australia, where they've actually announced the ban of all disposable vapes and it's only nicotine-based as a smoking cessation tool. So there's very different approaches from government from a tobacco control perspective, which will, um, I guess, moderate the impact on the environment. Our our concern on the impact of the environment is, in particular, these disposable vapes, which have gained in notoriety and, and access and prevalence, is that they've got lithium and, and lithium-ion batteries, depending on the device, which are being consumed and then thrown in the bin because there's no effective way to dispose of that. They don't integrate into any existing e-waste schemes. Um, they've got toxic um, you know, chemicals and, and nicotines in them. So some thought needs to be taken um, into how do we deal with that. So, is vaping um, less harmful than smoking? I think the jury's out. Um, has it got risk? Has it ha got harm potential? Absolutely. Um, you know, is it better for you? I think there's not enough answer, you know, not enough evidence to suggest that yet. So we would say if people are saying that is their solution, um, that they also need to be aware of what are the environmental implications of this new stream um, that they need to consider. Thank you so much, Shannon. Perfect. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you for inviting me. I'm Xu Jinchen from Pacific Environment. Our organization is a non-profit organization headquartered in California, USA. It's founded in 1987. It's older than me, actually. <laughs> uh, we are also part of the global break free from plastic movement. And uh, we came here as uh, an observer to... Uh, ensure an effective treaty out to end plastic pollution. You focused um, on the link between plastics and climate. Could you maybe tell us a little bit more about that? So plastic is made from fossil fuels, so carbon dioxide, and also greenhouse, other greenhouse gas emissions will be emitted from the whole life cycle of plastic, from the fossil fuel extraction, the, the oil refinery, the cranking process to produce the high HVCs, high volume 
the chemicals and also the polymerization of polymer to polymer and make the polymer to different products like P PVC PET all of the polymer and when you make when you when you dump dump this plastic products you will have plastic waste and the waste will go to different left end of life disposal process like landfill incineration and uh, mostly they will be linked to the open environment to our ocean or to our soil and also microplastic in the air even in our blood great that is really interesting to hear so um in terms of your background, could you maybe tell us a little bit about your, your background, um, your your technical training? Because you're also a technical expert in addition to uh, leading the campaign. Yeah, I'm happy to receive your invitation and I say yes for the first at the first and second because I have publication at at RSA. Uh, I received my PhD from Tsinghua University, it's a top one university in China in environmental science and engineering. Like uh, six years ago, <laughs> and also I'm joint training PhD of Columbia University in the city of New York in Earth and Environmental Engineering. And uh, uh, during my PhD, I'm working on the uh, carbon capture, some chemical process, uh, CCUS, and bio, bio, uh, bio energy, biogas, biogas process and after that I have experience in academic and then I kind of a switch a little bit to the non-profit organization I was in uh, previous I was in another organization also non-profit Alamacas foundation they are also popular in plastic areas yeah and now in Pacific environment, I'm also as a researcher and company manager of plastics. Uh, except for the program management part, I provide insights and analyze for our organization. Also, over a bigger movement, the break from plastic movement for the research insights, analyze especially on the plastic upstream. Thank you very much. I mean, you are bringing an incredible range of expertise to this. Um, so just thinking about the Plastics Treaty again, um, what impact could that treaty have on the environment and why Why do we all as the observers think that member states must commit to this as soon as possible? The situation is very emergency. So plastic pollution will double by 2040 and if under current trend, we don't do anything. The emission will exceed this carbon budget by three to five times. Actually, if we don't do nothing, the emission will exceed budget in 12 years. And by 2040, it, it will be like three to five times exceed the carbon budget. And we don't have enough time to act. This is the Red time and member states are gathering together, trying to solve the problem. And I really hope that the, the member states, especially the big plastic production countries and the big retail, like consumer, big uh, retailers that are headquartered in the global North countries and this uh, private sector and member states can work together to solve this problem, especially from the upstream. We have to identify that plastic is a life circle problem and we have to 
like define what is the where is the life circle start. Definitely is from the fossil fuel extract extraction, the very beginning of plastic. To solve the plastic from the whole life circle, I hope the treaty will have a clear target and the national imp- imp- implementation plan on the reduction of plastic. I think it's very uh, the most important message to coming back, uh, both back to your home country or other general audience is reduction. If the member countries can admit that we need reach consensus, we need reduction. Like you bring bring you in the door first, and then we discuss what's the target, what's the timeline. So consensus on reduction. Dr. Chen, thank yes. you so much. It's been a really, really interesting conversation. Thank you for your time, and um, let's hope the negotiations move on. Really happy talking to you. Thank you for inviting me. So I hope you've all enjoyed the listening to some of Dan's experiences. Dan, you were messaging some of us in the team to keep us updated and updating us not only on your croissant count, uh, very important, but also on some of the logistics around the negotiations and this kind of huge event um, and some bits and pieces of your reflections. And now you've had a bit more time to process. I was just wondering what you feel about the treaty and the negotiations now and I guess how that differs from what you were hoping or expecting before arriving at the meeting. Yeah, so I expected the session in Paris to be mostly about politics and with that about procedural matters and in part this also panned out that way but in the end the committee did start talking about more substantive issues and we have now started looking at the various options for obligations that might end up in the in the treaty and that might actually be legally binding um, and, and urging countries to to act on them. So that I think is a really, really positive thing, positive outcome. So what I took away from the folks we interviewed and the other organizations I spoke to in the margins of the session was that the plastics problem is incredibly complex and really, really very pervasive. And it reaches everyone on this planet and is also so strongly linked to climate change and biodiversity loss. The other thing I took away was that we need evidence and knowledge from all sorts of disciplines and sectors. And the the negotiation process will have to include a lot of input from, from science. And we as an organization will hopefully be able to support this. But the committee also needs to be on, on top of the techno-economics of this all and also engage with the societal aspects of the plastics crisis and of the transition to a more sustainable system. Okay, thanks, Dan. Um, It's really interesting to hear about um, the plastics treaty negotiations and great to hear about how the science is involved in this process. That's all from us and uh, see you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.